So you find a lot of people are leaders, but they'll lead based on their personality. So if you're a sunshine yellow, your tendency is to be an inspirational leader. But you know, I've been advised before that, Paul, you can't just lead by inspiration. Right? You can't just think, let me tell you a story, let me inspire you, then you'll be effective. I've been advised before that, Paul, you also have to learn to lead from your blue space, which is the detailed space, which is the space that does follow through and follow up and so on. And even if it's not my comfortable space, it's something I've had to also learn to do. We were discussing as pastors earlier on about certain situations in the church, and we realized that, you know what, there are a lot of people who are good executors, but they're not effective at building teams. And I was thinking to myself, so what am I going to have to do to help those people to actually build teams around them and to delegate. Because when they're not around, things fall apart. Remember that book by, was it Achinua Achebe? Things fall apart, right? So we don't want to just be good executors. And many of us have measured ourselves and our maturity based on how we execute. But meat is about raising up leaders. So I want to share with you a very powerful session on being a disciplined leader, right? Even if it doesn't suit your personality, okay? Because I'm not naturally this. This is something I have to do intentionally, okay? So are you ready? Okay. So we're going to talk about specific behaviors of disciplined leaders. And I promise you this one, if you master this, tomorrow at work, and you implement some of these things, Sean, you'll be amazed what will happen, the results you'll get. Okay? So what is discipline? What is discipline? What what does it mean to be a disciplined person? Discipline is where I pre-decide what's best for me to do, and then I follow through with that decision despite my emotional state at the time. It's pre-deciding what is best for me to do and then following through with that decision regardless of how I'm feeling at an emotional level. And in life, one of the keys to greatness and the keys to success is when we're disciplined, isn't it? Okay. For some people, lack of discipline is their downfall. You say to them, why did you make that decision? I felt like it. I just felt like it. I crumbled. Okay? Why did you treat those people that way? It just came out. As if words aren't spoken. As if words have got a life of their own and they just come out. You know? So, let's start with the behaviors. This is the affirmation of a disciplined person. Today, I decide what is best for me and my team and stand by that decision. I was coaching some people in one of the banks recently on this particular thing. And people in middle management, in fact, they're senior managers, right? But they were saying, Paul, you know what the challenge is? I can decide this route is best for my team. But then what happens is the executives that I report to, they keep chopping and changing things. So I decide this is the way forward, but then my team is now disillusioned. They get disillusioned because I come back and I say, okay, it's not happening anymore. How many of you are feeling me on that one? Okay. And so it's important to be in a space where you end up being a buffer and you're in a place where you can actually hold your own 
and say, guys, but we had decided that this is the route to go. If you find that one week it's this way, another week it's that way, you have to have that leadership strength in terms of upward influence to be able to say, but Paul, last, last month we decided we we're going this route. What's happening? How come we're chopping and changing? Pastor Michael used to do that to me. Michael used to do that. He was good at that. I'll be afraid of cancelling certain things because I knew Michael would say, but what about follow through? Because he's just got that staying power. You know, I was telling the guys, often we, we plan for the following year and we put all sorts of things on the calendar. Then as the year gets started, we're like, hey, guys, <laughs> you know. So upward influence is where you're able to actually keep people accountable. Otherwise, the people reporting to you you find that they start feeling like, this person, he told us this last week, now this different thing is happening. I'm not saying you can't change your mind along the way, but our general tendency is we don't stay the course. We don't follow through on what we've decided. As I was chatting to Pastor Tuffy and uh, Pastor Stuart, we sat down and we were coming up with ideas for next year and so on. I said, guys, the energy is there now, but you know what it's like? Yes, we can say we'll have this camp, this seminar, this thing for men, and so on. But I know what it's like when the year begins and you're starting to feel the fatigue. And you're like, eh. Okay? So the disciplined leader is realistic about what he can or cannot do, right? As he thinks of the following year. But once he's made a decision, he tries as much as possible to follow through. Because at the time of you felt this is what God wants us to do, we should run with this particular thing. So why do we want to bail out halfway through the year? Do you know why? Because very often we're now going by our emotional state. Okay. These principles we can also apply to family situations. You know? I find that often my kids make me accountable. Right? Because often we would have said we're going to do this and this and this. Yeah, but dad, how come we haven't done it yet? But dad, you said. You know how kids force you to keep your promises. And you want to say, but guys, it was just an idea. It wasn't really a promise. It was just an idea. So also be careful, hey? Because I know with my type of personality, I will share ideas. And I'll be like, we can do this, we can do this. And I'll accomplish a lot of it. But there'll always be that person in the room that doesn't just see it as an idea. That person in the room sees it as a promise that I made. Okay? So, uh, let's be aware of it. The second one, today I went to doing what is right despite how I feel at an emotional level. Today I commit to doing what is right despite how I feel at an emotional level. So don't be led by your emotions because your emotions can lead you astray. If you just go by how you're feeling, even though those feelings are very loud, I'm telling you right now, you end up making wrong choices in life. One of the things a lot of us are afraid of doing is pre-deciding our boundaries, pre-deciding what is wrong and what is right. I've got about 15 different types of boundaries, and I'm not going to cover them tonight. But when it comes to boundaries that we set for ourselves, we have what we call moral boundaries. How many of you have very clear moral boundaries? For example, this is what people can see, this is what they can't see, right? 
There are many ladies, I'm sure you see it happening a lot of times, who don't have boundaries that way. It's like, okay, are you okay with everyone seeing that part of your body? Okay, maybe we've got different standards, right? So we have moral boundaries, we have body boundaries, we have space boundaries. This is my space, and in my space, I don't allow this, okay? Today I was doing a workshop um, at, at the Reserve Bank, and there was someone who came and sat next to me, right, one of the leaders. And it was interesting what she said. She said she wanted to use the charger next to me. So then she says, Paul, are you okay with me sitting here, or am I invading your space? I said, I think there'll be a bit of a problem if I kind of had this thing of this is all my space, okay? But it's good to have space boundaries, right? Okay, do you allow people to just use any language right in your space? Or will you actually say, please, I don't appreciate that language. I don't want to have to be subjected to hearing that all the time, okay? An uncle of mine once said years ago, the reason why a lot of people fall into sin is because they haven't pre-decided beforehand that these are my standards and this is what I won't do and this is what I will do. You pre-decide. You don't just go with the flow. Okay? So today I'm, I commit, and it's a commitment, eh? I commit to doing what is right despite how I feel at an emotional level. At some point we're actually going to uh, have some cards made available. Okay? A nice card game that people have to purchase that actually has these 12 Ds as affirmations. It's the imprint right now. Okay, so they'll be coming out soon and I'm very excited about them. Okay? Today I commit to doing what is right despite how I feel at an emotional level. The next one. I love to remain calm under pressure. That's one of the marks of great leaders. They remain calm under pressure. Right? Pastor Vim is very good at that. Right? Just remaining calm under pressure, not looking flustered. Right? It's... It's important. I remember running workshops where people would say, what we appreciate about our boss is that she remains calm under pressure. When everyone else is stressed out, freaked out by stuff, she's just calm. Okay? I was teaching this recently and one person said, Paul, but what about me? Because isn't it a weakness? And this lady, she works for one of the vehicle plants and she said we had people coming in you know, it was some kind of demonstration happening of sorts. I won't go into detail about which political party it was. You can guess. But they came in and she said, you know, it was like it was Marikana and so on. She says people were freaking out, running around and so on. And she said, I just calculated the situation. And I saw that, okay, these guys, they don't have weapons. They don't have this. I think we're safe. We're fine. And then people were coming to me and saying, but what's wrong with you? Why weren't you stressed out like all of us? Do you ever have it when you're the calm person and everyone wants you to be freaking out like they are? That's one of the things about people when they're stressed out. They want you to also get stressed out. So I said, you know what? When this is overused, the danger is you can come across as detached. You see? Like people can think this person is not in touch with their emotions. So I said the skill is to be able to communicate empathy whilst still being calm. Can you see that? The skill is to be able to be like, hey, Sean, are you okay? Sunni, are you fine? Are you guys fine? Yeah, don't worry because of A, B, C, D. You're showing concern, you're demonstrating empathy, but you yourself are still in control. Okay? Remaining calm under pressure. 
Now, you know what the power of this one is? A lot of people end up very triggered and will do the emotional triggers when we have a camp next year, a leadership camp, okay? I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yes, yes. Don't worry, we used to do lots of camps and so on. We just chilled a bit recently. But um, we'll do it at the leadership camp. So if you're not yet a leader, just try and become a leader quickly, okay? <laughs> but, but we'll do the emotional triggers because when you're in an emotionally triggered state, what tends to happen is you bypass the prefrontal cortex of your brain, which is the thinking part, the logical part, and you go straight to your amygdala, which is your emotional center, right? And then it's fight, flight, or freeze. So if a lion walks through that door, what do we typically do? We will just run. We'll bore holes through these walls and we'll be out of here. None of us, none of us will sort of go to a flip chart and say, okay, chili, um... How fast do you do 100 meters? Let me see if I can outrun you. We won't use that part of our brain, will we? It'll be fight, flight, or freeze, right? But what a lot of people don't understand is when you're in that mode of being triggered, you're flooding your body with cortisol, which is your stress hormone. And it's very difficult for you to be productive when you're in that state. In fact, it stays in your system, the cortisol, for four hours. Four hours. And then what happens is that if you then have a fight, let's say with your boss at noon, so you've started off your day, maybe someone cut in the traffic, right? And that triggers you. And then at noon you have a fight with your boss. That's flooding your body again with cortisol for the rest of your day. Your day is gone. You're following. Your whole day is gone in terms of productivity because you're always being triggered. So the things that trigger us, for some people, is discrimination. Right? Someone in one of my workshops today was talking about that. They were saying, you know what, for me, it's discrimination. And they said, when it's, be it's because when I grew up, I grew up in a background where I was one of the first black people at an interracial school. It was in KZN. This lady was talking now, just sharing. Okay? And it was amazing what happened where she started to share experiences she'll have, where she says, I'm on this bus, and people wouldn't want me to sit next to them. They'll just say the seat is occupied, and so on. So very often, our wounds, she says, people will come and literally do these drive-bys, you know, where they would, she'll just be cycling to school, and they'll try and run her over. That's how bad it was. She got emotional as she shared this with us today. Okay? But what was interesting for me was, the link she made between that wound and what triggers her today, right? So very often we don't remain calm because of these emotional triggers. Is everyone following? Because of these emotional triggers. But find out what's yours. It could be people being condescending, people talking down at you. For some people, you're triggered by interruptions when someone interrupts when you're speaking, okay? Where does it come from? Because very often someone will speak to you at just 40 decibels, but you're hearing it at 90 decibels, you see. And people look and they say, why did you react? That was an overreaction. And it is an overreaction, but it's because of the wound. It's a bit like a boil, isn't it? How many of you have had boils before? You know, those abscess, and like an abscess. And if I say to you, is it sore? Was it sore? You'll say, Paul, it was when I applied pressure on it. If the boil was on your behind, it's when you sat on it, right? <laughs> Sorry for the imagery, right? We need to deal with our wounds. We need to deal with our wounds. 
Because if we don't, we will never remain calm under pressure. And I'm telling you now, as a leader, people want to know, you know what, do I feel safe when you are there? Because if you are freaking out as the leader, they'll also do the same. Even when we're ministering to people, have you noticed that one of the marks of leadership is let's say a demon is manifesting there and so on. The leader will just be like, guys, please, can someone just help that lady? Yeah, just take it to one of the rooms. There will already be a clear protocol around what to do. Now, if someone is manifesting a demon and you've got the person who's supposed to be the main minister there also freaking out and you can see he's scared of the demon, you'll have a bit of a problem, right? So I love to remain calm under pressure. And the only way we can do this is when we pre-decide. Can you see it takes discipline? It takes discipline. One of the ways of staying calm is ask more than two questions deep. Ask yourself, why am I so afraid? Let me give you an example. When that lion walks through the door, people typically run away, right? But if you've been trained in hunting, has anyone ever done hunting here? Okay. If you've been trained in hunting, what do they tell you? The moment you turn your back on a wild animal, you become its prey. So the trick isn't to turn your back. But instinctively, that's what you want to do. But now if you've been trained, you end up using your prefrontal cortex and you literally do what they do in the movies where you're just looking at this lion. Easy, Leo, easy. And you're looking at it. And then it walks away. It goes away. Some of you think you'll never do that. All right? My wife is also very good at this, remaining calm under pressure. Right? Like, what do you do in a situation that's emergency? Strong mentally. Okay? Sister Chili, I'm sure you're good from your nursing background. You know? What did you deal, how did you deal with the emergency rooms, for example? You can't panic. You can't freak out and now you have to do this injection and then now you're nervous about it. You train yourself. Remain calm under pressure. So in some of our professions, we're taught to do these things. But for some of us in life, we just get used to stress. And the sad thing is we make that stress become part of our personality. Oh, Paul, I don't do well with that, you know. Hey, it's too much pressure. And so we're so used to it. Exams come. Ah, it's too much pressure. Uh -uh. We can learn to remain calm under pressure. Sometimes it's about visualization. And I will touch on that a bit later on. But there have been situations where people will say, Paul, you dealt with that situation so smoothly, so calmly. I would have punched that guy's lights out. But you didn't react. And you know what I want to say to the people? I want to say to them, I was pressing the replay button of a video I had already played over and over again. I'd already visualized what my day would look like, despite my fatigue, despite how many hours I'd been teaching or whatever, right? So you program yourself to be in a certain mode. Does that make sense? Might touch on that a bit later. I maintain good judgment despite the pressure. I maintain good judgment despite the pressure. Let me give you an example at a physical level. As you know, my wife does triathlons. So her swimming coach today basically has this special camera where he was, he was videoing them as they were swimming. And the strategy he was basically using, he said, you know what, I, w I want you guys to do, and it was many hundred meters, like, you know, they do multiple sets, like 10 100 meters or 20 100 meters, whatever it was, right? And he says, I want you guys to go flat out. But the thing is, I'll video you 
when you're still fresh. Then I'm also going to video you again when you're now finished at the very end. Why was he doing that? He wanted to see what's the difference between their form at the start and their form at the end. So they can see for themselves and be given feedback to say, oh, when I'm finished, this is what I'm actually like. Does that make sense? What am I like as a teacher, for example, when I'm full of energy and when it's now day three and I'm teaching a class, let's say at Gibbs or wherever it is, okay? Some guys actually gave me feedback because I was talking about these types of things and they said, yeah, no, we saw it, we saw it. I was talking about the things that drain me. And I said, when I'm explaining these graphs in this detail, guys, that's not my thing. I always ask for a body break afterwards, not for myself. I say to them, guys, don't you think you need a break? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I'm the one who needs the break. So I was confessing that. And then they said, yeah, we saw it. We saw it. One of the ladies, she went into detail. I said to her afterwards, thanks for analyzing me. She said, yeah, because, you know, you kind of did this, and then your shoulders went like this, and then you did. It's like, yo, guys are analyzing me. All right? But I have to say to myself, do I maintain good judgment when I'm under pressure? Do I maintain good judgment when I feel emotionally drained? Okay? There are times when I'll be fatigued. Just finished a message. I'll speak to someone afterwards and I'll be firmer with the individual than I usually am. And afterwards I'll reflect. Like recently there was someone who I said, yeah, just send me an email. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. Then I was talking about certain things and explaining where I'm at and how tired I sometimes feel. Then I didn't get the email from the person. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, I hope I wasn't too firm with them. So it's something we have to watch. And it's part of your emotional intelligence. You know, part of emotional intelligence is being in touch with how you're feeling, right? I feel insecure. I felt embarrassed. I felt frustrated. But part of your EQ is also knowing the impact of how I'm feeling right now on other people around me. So when you feel insecure, how is it affecting the people around you? When you are feeling sad, what does that do to the people around you? You know, there's some people when they're feeling sad or starting to feel a bit depressed, they become very self-centered and self-absorbed. Are they fully aware of the draining effect it has on the people around them? You know those people when you meet with them and you just feel like they're sucking the life out of you? Most people who are like that don't know they're like that. Self-awareness helps you, okay? I embrace pressure and make sound decisions. I was coaching someone on this recently, and they said, I don't know. I sort of cope with pressure, Paul, but I don't know if I fully embrace it. How many of you are those people where you actually work well under pressure? Okay. I'm seeing a few hands, a few hands, a few hands. I see that hand. I see that hand. You can see I'm a pastor, right? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's a good thing to have, just as long as you then don't become the person where you leave everything till the last minute. Because there's some people like that. They work well under pressure, but they leave things till the last minute. So what I say to people like that is create your own pressure. You know, there's what's called Parkinson's law. You know Parkinson's law. You'll use up whatever amount of time you've been given to do a particular thing. So if someone says to you, can you do this? You've got two hours to do it. You'll do it in the two hours. If they say you've got three days to do it, somehow you'll just space it out, you know? <laughs> And then, by day, then we ask you, just, just before the end of day three, is it done yet? And you're like, I'll have it done, don't worry, I'll, it'll be done. 
Okay, so just watch out for that also. So what I say is create the pressure for yourself. Even if you've been given a deadline that's in three days' time, you can also do a thing where you make a deadline for yourself that's going to be after day one. Okay? But that's a good skill to have, to be able to embrace pressure and still make sound decisions. Okay? I have a good sense... I have a good sense of how much I can accomplish within the time that I have. Can you see this is self-awareness? There's some people, especially your fiery red type of people, you'll find that they tend to overestimate how much they can do. You know the people I'm talking about. Their to-do list is always massive. It's like, I'll do this, then I'll cover that, yeah, then I'll meet with you afterwards and so on. And with some of those people, I've had to give them feedback to say you've got 50 million things you want to do by the end of this week. But do you remember what happened last week? Remember how you had to start cancelling certain appointments and so on? Did you, not, did you not learn your lesson from last week? And you see often because of lack of self-awareness, what do those people do? The following week, the cycle repeats itself. And then they cancel on people, change, reschedule this and so on. Following week, the cycle begins again. Guys, if we want to be the disciplined leader, it's actually to discipline yourself, right? To rather do a few things well. Discipline yourself to do a few things well. Especially if you're the kind of person who's very ambitious and you're an achiever. Okay? Because people who are achievers and are very ambitious, very often they end up overloaded. I actually like um, Sean Roberts' philosophy. You know? Uh, and we once spoke about this. But he's got this whole thing of if you can't do something 100% well, why do it? Okay? So he pre-decides, this is what I can do. I'll think through what my commitments are and so on, and then I'll commit. And once I've committed, I will do it really, really well. And when, you, when I think of Sean Roberts, the things he does, he's not involved in every aspect in the church. But what he is involved in, he does extremely well. His small group, uh, money counting, that space, door greeting. Right? And I'm sure, there, and obviously there are other things he also does, you know, encouraging his wife, supporting her, and all of that kind of thing. Okay. But the point I'm making is the main things that he does, that we know he does, he does very well. Does that make sense? If I think of people like Stuart Bishop, when I, when I have conversations with Stuart Bishop and Sally Ann, Sally Ann will be there saying, yes, and then I'm also passionate about this. Yeah, and I guess I can also do this and so on. And Stuart is also, what does he call her? Lovey. Honey, lovey. What do you call your wife? Lovey, are you sure we'll be able to do that? Are you sure we can commit to that? Right? But look what he's doing. The main thing we know him for, when he preaches, he preaches well. Leading the band, the worship team, does it really well. It's his area. As we go into next year, we'll announce at the right time, there'll be other areas he'll be involved in. But the point I'm making is, that's one thing I know about Stuart. He'll be, he's very cautious. I'm even cautious in terms of asking him to do stuff because he's got quite strong boundaries. But when he commits, you know he's committed. A number of you are also like that, okay? I'm just highlighting these guys. Don't start thinking, oh, does the pastor not think I'm also like that? I'm just showcasing and celebrating my brothers. Is that okay? Okay, we're just rejoicing over them, right? So this is very important. Very, very important. I am making good decisions and sticking to them. Can you see this ties in with the first point? 
I'm making good decisions and I'm sticking to them. So do you think through your decisions? And once you've decided, how easy is it to change your mind? I'm not saying we mustn't be changeable. I'm not saying we must be these people who are rigid. I'm Mr. Flexible. I've actually got a the profile that was done on me uh, using a thing called Lumina. And when it came to flexibility, like I'm on the extreme, like I'm about 100% flexibility. And that's one of the things my wife keeps thanking me for. You know, when I'm fishing, when I just need to feel loved, I say, so what are the things you like about me? And one of her things is, I love the way you're so flexible and non-controlling. Okay? So that's me. But one of the things I'm having to learn to do is sometimes when you've made a decision, stick with it and push through. In fact, what used to happen to me is sometimes I would say, ah, guys, I got bored of that, so I'm now running with this. And the Lord convicted me and said, Paul, because you're a confident and you're a courageous person, you keep calling it boredom, but you were actually discouraged. You know, sometimes if something doesn't fit into your self-concept, you just call it something else. So instead of actually facing a situation and saying, I was discouraged, that's why I stopped doing that, because I wasn't seeing the results, and I started doing that. And in some of those areas, I should have actually pushed through. But I phrased it in a nice way that was palatable to how I saw myself. Because I couldn't say to myself, like, Paul, you felt discouraged, that's why you gave up on that. Does that make sense? So I gave it a nice word. I was bored. I have multiple approaches to decision-making. This is what we call agile thinking. Agile thinking. You see, there's some people who only have one way of making a decision. And for them, that's logical analysis. So they're very analytical. How many of you are like that? That's the main way you make decisions. You're very analytical until it's paralysis of analysis. Let me just say something. When you go too extreme on logical analysis, it becomes draining, doesn't it? Okay? So here's what you do. There's what we call agile thinking. Great leaders can shift in and out of different ways of making decisions. So you'll find that person who's strong on logical analysis, they end up coming up with three options through their analysis. Then you say to these individuals, okay, so which of the three are you going to pick? Ah, well, Paul, it depends. Depends on what? Well, you see, it just depends. Maybe we need to bring in a consultant to help us with this decision. Can you see the person is not shifting into other decision-making modes, like gut feel judgment? You see, sometimes you do the analysis, and then you end up pinning it down to three options. Then that's the time to use your gut and to trust your gut to actually say, let's go with option two. But some people, because they've been hurt in life, or they've made foolish decisions, they don't trust their intuition and their gut anymore. So they're like, ah, uh, ah, uh, and they're stuck in logical analysis. The agile thinker makes decisions using different tools. You do, the ad, you do the analytical thinking, you shift gears into gut feel judgment. You can also shift into possibility thinking. What's possibility thinking? It's where we're just dreaming. And for some of you, you have to actually discipline yourself to just dream. So it's literally where we say, here's a flip chart, let's just think outside the box. But have you noticed that sometimes you try and do that in a team setting with someone? And there's always that one person who's like, no, that won't work. And you're like, no, but we're just dreaming. No, that won't work. And they always say it like that. Have you noticed that? Right? Ah, no, but do we have enough money? Ah, but what about the budget? No, we're just in dream mode. 
husband and wife who want to dream together, because it's one thing to dream by yourself, but it's good to dream together. You know that some, some husbands and wives never dream because there's someone who's always saying, yeah, but we don't have enough money. But then you, you end up never knowing what your wife's dream car is, what your husband's dream house is, right? So that's possibility thinking. Let's just think. If we had all the money, limitless budget, what would we want? Then afterwards, we can always refine it. Another thinking mode is scenario planning, where you just think in terms of scenarios. Let's, let's think of this scenario. If you lived in England, let's just think, let's just play, just work with me on this one. If you lived in England, okay, if our kids went to such and such a school, let's play with that scenario. It's useful, isn't it? Okay? Scenario planning. Another one is evidence-based thinking. Evidence-based thinking. It's where you make decisions based on the evidence that you can actually see that's tangible. Otherwise, if you only go by gut feel, you just I've got a good feeling about this. No, let's look at the evidence. And part of looking at the evidence is also looking at the money, isn't it? You know when people say to you, uh, let's look at the numbers. The numbers never lie. You know when people say that? The numbers never lie. <laughs> All right? So can you see you've got different ways of thinking? There's also systems thinking. Systems thinking is where you look at the broader ramification of things. So you have some people who just focus on their silo. But they have to learn to discipline themselves, to look beyond the silo, and to say, you know what? We're making this decision for Highfelt Church. But how will this decision impact Joburg? How will it impact Pretoria? That's systems thinking. You're looking at the broader ramifications. Okay? The agile thinker is able to go in and out of these different ways of thinking. Does that make sense? Okay. I remain aligned to my core values and I encourage others to do the same. Firstly, do you know what your core values are? How many of you are very clear about your core values? If someone approaches you right now and they say, what are your core values? Or if you're hoping to get married soon, are you able to articulate to your future spouse, these are my core values, this is what's important to me? Are you able? A lot of people aren't. Some people have got espoused values that aren't their core values. Your espoused values, those are the values you talk about a lot. You know how to parrot them. But put under pressure, we realize that that's actually not core to you. Okay? And then the trick as a leader is to encourage others to be aligned to your values. One of the marks of great leaders, there's a leadership model developed by the Center for Creative Leadership, DAC. Direction, Alignment, Commitment. That's what leaders do. You set the direction of something. You make sure people are aligned with it. And then you get them to be committed to it. It's one thing for me to just preach and say, these are our values. It's another thing for me to be able to get people to be aligned with those values. Okay? We were talking earlier on and Stuart was just talking about the importance of rebuild. And we're just talking how strategically we need to make sure that as people get saved, they're getting baptized straight afterwards, and at the same time, they're also going through a rebuild so that we know what we're dealing with. We know who we're dealing with, right? You know what's so interesting? 
is um, with the captain of an aircraft. Captain has to also check in his bags. You know that. Captain can't just waltz in with anything. He has to also check in his bags. So it doesn't matter how great or how mature someone is. When they come to this group of people, they also need to check in their bags. Where we say, okay, so what do you believe and why? Are we on the same page? Yeah? Because there are different teachings out there. So when you work with a group of people as a leader, make sure you are aligned. Not just in terms of vision, but aligned in terms of values. One of the problems we have is a lot of times leaders just talk about the vision. Are we going to the same place? Are we going to Durban? Everyone is going to Durban, right? You're not going to Maritzburg. Yeah, we're all going straight through to Durban. So we're very good when it comes to vision alignment, but not so good when it comes to values alignment. Okay? So, do you know what your values are? Do you remain aligned to those core values? And do you encourage others to do the same? If you're not confident, you won't encourage others to do the same, eh? You'll be like, no, I can't, I can't put that on you. But you're the leader. Whatever area you're leading, what are your core values? Hey, guys, come 10 minutes early. Don't waltz in and, you know, come 15 minutes late. I'm talking about the context of a Sunday service, right? Where you're supposed to be the door greeter, but you're pitching up when most of the people have already arrived at church. Now, if you're building a team of door greeters, one of your values has to be time. You can't just be like, oh, no, I, I can't impose my standards on everyone. My standards are too high. But you're the leader. Does that make sense? You're the leader. Okay? I'm very clear about my core values, and I know how to articulate them to others. I know how to articulate them to others. You see, someone can say to you, guys, one of my core values is respect, mutual respect. We must all respect each other. But you know that it's one thing to say that, it's another thing to articulate it. What do I mean by articulating it? Articulating it is highlighting the behaviors associated with the core value. Guys, you know what? Mutual respect is really important to me, and this is what it looks like. Don't raise your voice when you're talking to other team members. Okay? Just speak gently. That's very important. The other thing is, if you know you're running late for any one of my meetings, phone me and let me know that, oh, I'm running late, so that the mission isn't disturbed. Okay? That's respectful. Right? Another aspect of mutual respect is, if you set up a meeting right, with me, please come prepared. Let's look at the agenda. Let's see how we need to be prepared. Otherwise, you're wasting my time. Can you see that you have to sit down with your team and literally list the behaviors associated with the core value. Some years ago, I was in a situation where I had been coaching a particular lady in one of the banks. She led a particular team. And she had told me that one of her core values was respect. Right? Was respect. And I'd said to her, what does respect look like to you? And she said, you know what? For me, Paul, don't raise your voice. In my family, we are quiet people. We don't shout. So you disrespect me if you shout at me. Then what happened some months later, there was a mutiny. She called it a mutiny where there was a grievance against her from some of her subordinates. So I was called to intervene. And remember this lady, one of her core values was respect. Then I'm now seeing one of her subordinates shouting at her. 
She was an older lady, and she was shouting at this particular person, literally shouting at her boss. And I don't think she was aware that she was doing this. I then asked this lady, what are your core values? And guess what she said? Respect. And I said, what does that look like? She says, well, Paul, I come to work early. And if my boss sets, a meeting, sets up a meeting with me early, and then she pitches up late, and I'm now running with other things, and then expects me to drop everything I'm doing and still meet with her, I feel disrespected because my time is just as important as her time. Can you see what's happening? Both of them at this espoused level value respect, but it looks different. Sometimes in the workplace, you have some people, you know those people who want to greet everyone, but not just saying, hey guys, how are you all doing? And then sitting down. They want to shake hands with everyone. Every morning, religiously, they'll do that. Now, some people can feel like, oh, you didn't physically greet me, therefore I feel disrespected by you. But with another person, they could say, no, I didn't want to disturb you. I thought it would be disrespectful if I stop you from what you're doing because you're so absorbed in your work. Can you see why in a team setting it's important to actually unpack the values? Where you literally say, someone who's respectful, these are the behaviors, and then someone who doesn't exhibit this value of respect, these are the behaviors. So you literally paint a picture of what respect looks like and what it doesn't look like. Does that make sense? It's very powerful when you do this in your family also. When you actually do it. Have you noticed that with kids, we have to actually unpack what it looks like? So for example, I don't like it when an adult comes and they, have to, and they greet my kids before my kids have greeted them. It's one of my triggers. I say, guys, why is this person greeting you before you've greeted them? One of the ways you show respect to someone who's older is you greet them first. But you have to teach your children that. They, they can't just guess it. Okay? How does a child just guess that I must be the first to do it? It's the same when you're leading a team. I have widely known non-negotiable values that become deal breakers when others do not comply with them. So the values that you've got, my question to you is, are they widely known? Do people know that's what you stand for? Or the people that know, it's only in your small church circle. This is what I've noticed with a lot of people, hey? They're ashamed of their values. Do you remember what Jesus said? He says, if you are ashamed, if anyone is ashamed of me and of my teaching, so will the Son of Man be ashamed of him when he is in the glory of his Father's splendor. Do you remember that scripture? There's powerful revelation in it. Do you know what I've learned? I've made a covenant with the Lord. Wherever I go, in various places and so on, right? Unless it's not wise to do so. I want people to know and I communicate that I'm also a pastor. In my own way. I don't always say it at the beginning unless I'm introduced as that. Right? When I'm doing corporate meetings and things like that. I'll mention it. Lest at some point I ever become ashamed of the gospel. Does that make sense? Right? It's nothing to hide. Jesus said, don't hide your lamp under a bushel. Now, here's what I've noticed about a lot of people. They don't mind people knowing that they're Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. But when it comes to some of the difficult teachings, they shy about it. They keep quiet about it. You know what I'm talking about. But you know what I've noticed? 
If you look in scripture, there's an extremely powerful revelation in terms of walking in God's favor. Powerful revelation. Jesus says, if you are not ashamed of me and of my teachings, which is himself, eh, from his teachings, says me and of my teachings. He says, so I will not be ashamed of you in my father's presence. What happens in his father's presence? What is Jesus doing right now? He's making intercession on our behalf. Angels are being dispatched, ministering angels on our behalf. So I know. Have you noticed that the people who are used greatly when it comes to healing, when it comes to working of miracles, the power gifts and so on, have you noticed something about them? They're not ashamed of the gospel. They're not shy about it. And I believe that to the degree to which we're not shy about the gospel, and of Jesus' teachings, even his radical ones, very often to the same degree does he acknowledge us. Does he acknowledge us before his Father? There's activity happening right now. When Jesus said that he's not just talking about the white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ, he's talking about right now. Right now. I don't know about you, but there's certain people who've got many angels that walk with them. There's some people who've only got a few, others have got many. And I believe it's because of these principles. I am not ashamed of the gospel, as Paul says, for it's God's power unto salvation. Okay? Sometimes, the t- to be honest with you, sometimes the prophetic has, f- has flowed the most, not just when I'm preaching or in a church setting. Often it's actually when I'm doing one-on-one corporate coaching because God loves those people. Amen? I remember a time when it was a Muslim guy, one of those hardcore guys who knows the Quran by memory. He knows it and he can recite it. And I started reading his mail, prophesying things about, you know, seeing what I was seeing and so on. And this guy was blown away. He says, Paul, you've only known me for 45 minutes and you know all these things about me. Does that make sense? Some of you could function like that, but you've got this thing of, hey, I'm in corporate. Hey, no, hey, Paul, hey, it won't look good. You don't have to say, thus says the Lord before you prophesy. You know, some people have got this thing of like, it'll only be the prophetic if I say, thus uh, says uh, the Lord. Uh. No, God's word is powerful as is. That's why recently I was coaching someone and the person is um, from a Hindu background. And they actually said, you know what, Paul? I encouraged my colleague so-and-so to join in and start attending the coaching sessions. Because I know with you, you're not just some psychologist. There's some higher, she said, some higher power at work with you. There's something else that operates there. Because every time we meet, it's like basically I would be literally locating the person. Does that make sense? But, I, but it's normal, natural conversation. Okay? It doesn't have to be, my sister, my sister, my sister, I'm sensing something in the spirit. You don't have to do that. You can just be natural as you're doing it. Okay? No, because there's some people who become religious weird. You know what I'm talking about. So, are your values widely known? I was doing a session, it was day three recently at Gibbs, and I was talking to them about building your personal brand at the end of the session, I basically then said to them, okay, and what about me, guys? What's my brand? What do you think of me? What comes up when you think of me? And they said a number of things, you know. You've got style. You've got this. You're knowledgeable. You are a family man. You're this. But I was really happy when one of the women who was in the group said, you're a God-fearing person. 
you're a God-fearing person, because I want that to be part of my brand. How widely known are your core values amongst your family members? Or are you only known as a radical person amongst your church group? If it's limited to your church group, that's not radical. Your radical nature is seen in the marketplace. Right? Here's the powerful thing about this statement. They become deal breakers when others do not comply with them. See, there's some people who say, I'm a person of integrity. Then they find out that their business partner is a dubious character. Or as my kids like to say, a random dodgy person. That combo. It's just a powerful. You can't just say a random person. You can't say a dodgy person. A random dodgy person. That's just, you know, squared. Right? So that person is dubious. Does it become a deal breaker? Do you break up the partnership with the person? Because that's the test to see, is it really a non-negotiable value? And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of people who keep saying, I've got this value system, I've got this value, these are my values, and then I've got this value, and then these values are so, so important. Are they important enough for you to break up the partnership? You see? Now, obviously, one needs wisdom in terms of what partnerships do you remain in, which ones do you stay out of, and so on. I can't give you a law right now, but all I'm saying is, how core are those values to you? Because if they don't change anything, if it doesn't affect who you invite to your house and who you don't invite, then is it really a core value, or is it just an espoused value? I think many people who think they've got core values, they're just espoused values. They sound nice. It's a nice principle you go by when it suits you. We could stay on that one for a while. Huh? People describe me as a focused individual. How many of you are known as very focused? Okay? Just remember, strength overused becomes a liability. So often if you're a focused person, you find that people also say to you what? They'll also say, you know what? Sometimes you get fixated and obsessed with stuff. Have you noticed that? Some people are very focused. When that's overused, they become fixated and obsessed with stuff. Right? But... It's a strength. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? How many of you can safely say, Paul, I am a focused individual. Once I've put my mind to something, I pursue it. That's a key to success. I love what Paul J. Mayer says about success. Success is the progressive realization of predetermined, worthwhile personal goals. Success is the progressive realization of predetermined, worthwhile, personal goals. Can you see discipline there? Success is the progressive realization of predetermined, worthwhile, personal goals. Do I keep pursuing those goals? Am I focused? What happens to those, those people who are into comrades? What will they tell you? You focus on to-go goals, not on to-date goals, right? What do I mean? A to-date goal is... I've run 1K. Oh, I've now done 2Ks. Oh, I've done 3Ks. If you're like me on a weekend, I've done 4Ks. Ah, Paul, I think 5Ks will be enough eh, for the weekend. You must enjoy your weekend. That's a to-date goal. It doesn't result in success. To-goal goals result in success. It's if you want to run 10Ks, you basically say 9 to go, 8 to go seven to go. And what happens? You end up reaching your goal. A lot of people who become CAs, 
The reason they become CAs is they had to go goals. Because they started studying accounts with the goal of, I want to become a CA. Right? Someone who's got a to-go goal ends up getting a PhD. Why? Their mindset is when they do their first degree, one down, three to go. They do their honors, two to go. Do their masters, one to go. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm showing you, this is very scientific what I'm explaining, hey? If you study the science of success, successful people are goal setters, but they set to-go goals, not to date goals. Make sense? It's also something that you can apply to weight loss, by the way. If you've got to-date goals when it comes to weight loss, you'll be just like, I've lost seven kgs, guys, in the last seven months. Seven kgs. That's a to-date goal. But if your ideal weight requires you to, have lo to lose 15 kgs, you know what? You'll be so encouraged with your seven kgs, you'll sit back and you'll go back to your old lifestyle. But if your mindset is seven down, guys, eight to go, if it's 15 kgs you want to lose, seven to go, six to go. Does that make sense? Okay. That's focus. My question to you is what are you focused on? Because you get what you focus on. What's the basic rule of night driving? What happens if there's oncoming traffic and you look at the, the lights? You generally move into the direction that you're looking at, don't you? You, you, you generally do. So watch out for that also. Okay? You get what you focus on. I consistently embrace the principle of delayed gratification. Not always easy, right? Are you willing to press pause? Are you willing to say, you know what? I would rather save that money and wait and get something nicer in 18 months than just get that thing now. I want it now. Okay? Can you see that the disciplined person is able to press pause? And this is where we have to face ourselves, eh? You know, in life, one of the things that makes you successful is what we call facing stuff. And there are three major things to face. Facing yourself, facing others, and facing your work. Facing your work is where you can say, oh, guys, I'm not cut out for this. You know, I've been practicing law for the last seven years. I now realize I'm an entrepreneur. Let me buy that franchise. You know, you faced your work, right? Ah, guys, I was doing this. I, I pursued this career just to please my dad. Oh, how does your dad feel about it now? He must be proud of you. I don't know. He died 13 years ago. You know what I mean? You have situations like that where people, who are you trying to impress? Why are you doing this? You have to face your work. That's discipline. You also have to face others. What is facing others? It's where you speak to that friend and you say, listen, dude, you're right. I have been ignoring you because each time you visit me, you want something from me, you know? And I'm finding it draining because I believe that friendship is supposed to be mutual, give and take. So we have to take this friendship from the top. Let's talk, okay? You're facing others, okay? And then facing yourself is where you look in the mirror and you actually say, guys, to be honest with you, I'm a people pleaser. That's my problem. That's my growth step. I don't know how to say no to people. You're facing yourself. Facing yourself can also be positive, by the way where you basically say, you know what, guys? I'm much smarter than I make myself out to be. I always dumb myself down because I'm afraid of rejection. I'm actually pretty smart. And the job I'm currently doing is not intellectually stimulating enough, so I need to find something else. You're facing yourself. Does that make sense? Okay? <clears throat> when it comes to 
facing yourself, the result of it often is you admit certain things. And one of the big things many of us have to admit is, guys, I'm an impulsive shopper. Guys, I don't know when to stop when it comes to spending. Guys, I'm an emotional eater. Can you see? It will help you with delayed gratification. That's discipline, isn't it? Can anyone here think of something that they are actually delaying their gratification about? You can just shout it out. Something you want, but you're pressing pause. Should I start just to get you guys going? You know, our house has been on the market because our kids want to live in an expensive estate close to their school, right? So our house has been on the market. But then it hasn't been selling, right? Um, and I'm sort of thinking, is this a sign, you know, that maybe we should just chill? We're not desperate to move on. And I just said to my wife recently, I said, you know what? If we don't sell it by the end of the year, it's actually fine. We should actually just pay it all off anyway. You know what I mean? Get out of the debt and then see what we have to do. Right? Instead of like being quick to, okay, we now want to stay here. We now want to do that. That's delayed gratification. Right? Because the reality is we could possibly right now, even while we have this house, we could go to the bank and they will give us the money and we could get quite an expensive house elsewhere. Right? But then it just sinks you into deeper debt. Okay? So, delayed gratification. Okay? Any examples, shout them out. It's a safe space. Your new couch? Yes, okay, your new couches. Okay. Okay, that's brilliant. It's what we call buy ones. Hey, where you just buy something and it's high quality and you've bought ones. And it lasts you a number of years. Anyone else? Just shout it out. Delayed gratification. Come on. You're saving that money. And you always get tempted to just withdraw it and use it for this or that. But you're delaying. You see your friends. They've got this. They've got that. Yes, Sipo. <laughs> Getting new equipment. Video stuff. Yeah, to press pause. And it's not easy, especially when you know that it will make you more efficient. The quality of the stuff will be better. But you're pressing pause. Okay. Sorry? Bigger house or better car. Yes. Hey, just remember, you know, some of these... Nice cars, they look all nice. You know, some people say, oh, Paul, your car is so nice. Then I say, yeah, oh, okay, do you want it? You know? And you can also take over the repayments you know, type of thing. So we see people with nice stuff, but you don't know. Like, it's much better to have your vehicle. doesn't look that great, but it's fully paid for, isn't it? Okay? All right, so that's discipline. One more person. Sorry? And your wife is sitting right next to you. And she's thinking, uh-uh, you can't like say, we'll, only, we'll have our dream holiday one day. One day. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so no one else can speak after you. 
you're a, you're a wise man, you're a wise man. Sometimes it's, it's, it's more to do with, and I know what you mean, you, you're pressing pause in terms of the very expensive holiday. So let's have holidays, but we don't need to spend necessarily too much, but we will get a bit later. Sometimes when we're talking about delayed gratification, the delay isn't always that long, hey? We're not always talking about three years, five years. Sometimes it's just to say, you know what, let's go to a simple place now, and let's rather save up so that at the end of the year we go to that nice place we want to go. It's a powerful discipline, okay? I'm good at saving money. <laughs> Let me just qualify this. Some people think that they're so righteous because they're savers. But remember what I said to you, I think it was at Ignite. We also have to be strategic about our spending. Some of us should be spending money, but because we are hoarding it and because of fear of lack, we don't spend you know what I mean? Like you have these people who are super savers and I feel sorry for their wives or their husbands. You know, I counsel lots of couples and there's always one who say, you know, I, we wanted to buy new curtains. You know, I just want my house to look nicer. But he's like, oh, what's the point of curtains? Why do we need that? We must save. Okay? And then you end up not enjoying the money you're actually making. Okay? So we have to always keep this in balance. But it takes discipline to actually save. And saving is powerful when it's planned and when it's a habit. And the key habit here is as you earn more money, you don't have to spend more money. Do you know what I mean? At a certain point, you have to put a cap onto your lifestyle. There's only one car you can drive at a time. Does that make sense? And, and we, in terms of wealth creation, the people who create wealth are often the people who are strong when it comes to saying, I'm making more money but I don't have to show it off. I'm making more money, but I don't have to buy a million and one things. Okay? So that's a, an important discipline. I embrace the truth that the price of discipline, I love this quote, the price of discipline is always less than the pain of regret. For many of us who are starting to work on our exercise and trying to get into a routine and so on, this is a biggie, isn't it? Because we'll reach a certain age where our spouses now have to suffer taking us up and down to and fro in terms of um, hospitals and that kind of thing. All because we didn't look after ourselves when we were younger. And I want to say this, often when we are still young, we think we're invincible. Okay? But I'm telling you right now, I mean, I'm 43 right now, and the things I feel in my body that I didn't feel before. You know? And I'm like, huh? What's that? What's going on? Sometimes I can still sprint faster than anyone else in my family. My kids are starting to catch up because they've got this confidence where they're like, oh, Dad, we can outrun you. Dad, we can outrun. I say, just keep the distance short and I'll pace you guys. So I'm still ahead of everyone. But when they do these father's races at school and so on, you start feeling it. Where you push yourself because your kids want to be proud of you. Dad, Dad, you overtook that guy and so on. You were so fast. But how do I feel for the next week after that? I don't want that anymore. So I want to be like Sean Roberts when I grow up. Okay. So I embrace the truth that the price of discipline is always less than the pain of regret. That's discipline, isn't it? Okay. I often sacrifice the pleasure and thrill of the moment for what matters most in life. The thrill of the moment. It's easy to get up and exaggerate to people so that they admire you more. There's that thrill. We sometimes are addicted to these things, the praise of men, 
right? That's the thrill of the moment. You know what this is? You know what the word for this is? Hedonism. Hedonism. H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M. Hedonism. Hedonism is enjoy the moment right now and don't care about the consequences. Some people are bound by the spirit, eh? That's why you always wonder, huh? But this person, they come to church regularly. They're quite a disciplined person in other areas. What happened last weekend? We've counseled them marriage-wise, etc. They know that their wife is upset if they keep going and just boozing like that. What happened last weekend? It was this. They were not willing to sacrifice the pleasure and thrill of the moment for what matters most in life. You know what the powerful tool here is? You ask yourself this question. It's like a self-coaching question. You say to yourself, this decision I'm about to make to compromise, a year down the line from now when I'm looking back, what do I need to do right now that I'll feel proud of a year down the line? You see, you, all, you have to literally get yourself out of the moment. If you just think of that moment and how loud your emotions are, like, ah, just once is okay, whatever it is. No, it's not okay. The pain of regret. We're talking about discipline. I manage myself well. Self-management. Do you know why we need external government? Why do we need external government? Why do we need police officers? Why can't we just shout out and put an announcement and say, guys, please try not to steal from anyone. And then everyone confidently just walks out. and so on. Do you know why? Because the heart of man is corrupt and man cannot govern himself. So when you can't govern yourself, you then need external government. Someone checking up on you. you know? That's why different companies have clocking ins and clocking outs because they don't trust that someone can actually say, you know what, I'll do my time. You can trust me. Right? If I know that Sunera is strong on her self-government, and if I trust her integrity, right? Because of that, I don't have to keep checking up on her and saying, so what did you do today? How was your day, Sunera? Can you just clock in and give me a report? What did you cover today, Sunera? I don't govern her externally because she's got internal self-government. Does that make sense? Okay. So, do you manage yourself well? Now, when we talk about self-management, what, what are we including here? It's being a steward of my time. That's a big one. I manage my time well. Right? It's being a steward of my body. I manage my body well. It's being a steward of my finances. I tell my money where to go. As opposed to being led by the spirit of mammon. Hey, yeah. I decided I was just going to buy one or two things at the groceries. But, uh, yeah. Uh, then you come with a car full of goods. What happened? I thought you decided you were just going to buy bread and milk. Now you've come home with all these things. What happened between the time you decided and the time you came back home? All right? Self-management is also to do with managing your emotions. I felt angry. What did I do with that emotion? Did I keep it in check? Did I channel it in the right direction? Or did I say, no, they just made me angry. People don't make you something. It's because you are reacting, not responding. Often I say to people, if you say to, 
How many of you in the last six months have used this term, she just drives me up the wall? Or he just drives me up the wall? Often when I say he, then people put their hands up. Okay? And I say to them, does he or she place you on top of their bonnet and physically drive you up the wall? No. You end up up the wall because you were reacting, not responding. Okay? So it's about managing your emotions. It's about managing your devotional life. Are you in charge of it? Do you make appointments with God and stick to them? Or is it a case where you don't cancel on other people, but you cancel on God? Have you noticed that when it comes to our time management, we're very good at keeping appointments with other people. But keeping appointments with ourselves, not as good. So it's, so it's easy for me, isn't it, to say to you, sorry, I can't meet you, I've got a meeting with Pastor Vim. It's not that easy for me to say, sorry, Taffy, I won't be able to meet you on Saturday morning because I just need some me time. I just need to catch up with myself. It sounds selfish, doesn't it? But you have to respect yourself enough to invest in yourself. Oh, sorry, um, Harvey, I can't meet you on Saturday morning. I'm reading that book that Paul recommended. I just need to develop myself. Your personal development is the best gift you can give to the people around you. Your personal development is the best gift you can give the people around you. If you've got anger issues, working on managing your anger, anger management training, is the best gift you can give the people around you. So don't be afraid of investing in yourself. Okay? And don't, don't cancel appointments you've set with yourself. So are you managing yourself well? Do you manage yourself well? Self-management. I manage my energy well and focus it on productive activities. There's what we call conventional time management, which is at 2 o'clock I did this, at 3 o'clock I'll do that, at 4 p.m. I'll do that. But there's what we call inner time management, ITM. Not CTM, conventional time management, but ITM, inner time management. That is, how did I feel at 4 p.m.? That is, you know what, guys? Let me do the people stuff early in the morning before I'm peopled out. Right? And then let me do other tasks later on. There was a guy who wasn't into people. And he said in one of my workshops, Hey, guys, you know what? I get drained when I'm dealing with too many people back to back. So I'm fine with people, but before 12. And it was meaning 12 noon. Right? And <laughs> then we would joke with him and we'd say, We'll make an appointment with you before 12. He was managing his energy. Very often we do things at the wrong time of the day. Have you noticed that? I used to be a night owl. Well, just work and work and work because I had this thing. I have to finish what I'm doing. I have to finish what I'm doing. I can't go to bed until I finish what I'm doing. But then I'll start nodding off, falling asleep while I'm doing those things. I don't know if any of you are feeling me on that, right? And my wife said, if you just come to bed earlier and you wake up early and do those things, you could be more productive. I took her advice. And I realized that something that could take me two hours to do at night when I'm tired, I could maybe do in half an hour if I woke up early and did it. So managing your energy well. Are you doing things at the right time of the day? Managing your energy well is also to do with figuring out what drains you and avoiding those things. Asking yourself, what are the things that drain me? You do them less and less. What are the things that energize me? You do them more and more. You know what the sad thing is? I ask some people this question. I say, what drains you? And they say, oh, Paul, my job is draining, my job is draining. I say to them, your job doesn't drain you. You just have draining moments at work. Think about it. 
Your job doesn't drain you. You have draining moments at work. People say, ah, oh, my job is so stressful. No, you have stressful moments at work. And when you figure out what those are and you avoid them, it's amazing how your view of your work and your job just changes. Think about it. You're not drained by your job. It's that guy who's on your team who sucks the life out of you. That's what drains you. You're fine until you have a meeting with that stakeholder. That's horrible. At 4 p.m. Your day was fine until 4 p.m. If you meet that person at 10 a.m., your day is fine until 10 a.m. So try to do an activity log or an emotional log and you figure out, oh, this is what's draining me. Okay? I avoid activities that drain me. That's the affirmation around that. Now, there's certain things we can't avoid. But you know what's been found? People spend 20%, only 20% of their time doing what they were born to do. And then the other 80% doing what anyone else could be doing. Other people could be doing it. Imagine if that was inverted. Imagine if 80% of your time you're spending doing what you're born to do and only 20% of your time you're doing the stuff that other people could do. People have said to me, Paul, you're so productive. How do you do it and where do you get the energy from? Can I share what, with you what it is? I spend at least 80%, at least 80% of my activities, I'm doing what I was born to do. The other 20%, in fact, when I used to say it, and I think maybe I, I had to check myself, because I'd say, ah, guys, 95% of what I do, I'm doing what I was born to do. The other 5% is admin and those kinds of things. Then I thought about it, and I thought, no, Paul, maybe it's closer to 80%, maybe not quite 95%. That's a bit of an exaggeration. All right? But the point I'm making is, Often I will coach people and I'll say, that thing that's your high leverage activity, that you're brilliant at, that you're known for, what percentage of your time do you spend doing it? And you'll hear people saying 21%, 30%, 17%. Then I say to them, guys, what can I do to help you to take it from 30% to 60%? To take it from 40% to 70%? And sometimes it's about learning to say no to the other stuff that drains you. Having those boundaries. Not feeling guilty about it. You know what? I see people, they go to these extended family gatherings. They spend three or four hours there just having small talk. Small talk. There's always one person who plucks up the courage to say, guys, I'm going. But they always have to have an excuse. Have you noticed that? And the excuses of, I, I have to fetch my son from such and such a place. Then you find everyone else around them. What do they say? Oh, am I parking you? And I think I better leave too. I better leave. And I'm thinking to myself, all these other people, at what point do they want to leave? But they didn't have the courage to say, I'm going. And people like me will just be there for maybe an hour, an hour and a half. I'll have quality, meaningful conversations. Often I would have prayed about it beforehand. Often when my wife and I are going somewhere, family functions, we'll pray. Lord, we pray that we may have God encounters while we're there. Lord, may you lead us to pray, with the, to speak to the right people and so on. And more often than not, I have quality, meaningful conversations. And when I need to go, guys, it's been real. I don't have to have an excuse. Why do I have no excuse? People were blessed by my presence for two hours, two and a half hours, however long it was, one hour. Why do I have to apologize for going? The secret to success is hidden in your daily routine. The secret to greatness is seen in your use of time. 
We've all been given 24 hours in a day. The difference between us, I can tell you right now, the difference between us as people, whether you're Barack Obama, Jacob Zuma, or Tafi, the difference between us is how we use our time. Simple as that. Right? I can go on and talk about that for long. So I manage my time well. That's the affirmation of a disciplined person. Right? You pre-decide. You pre-decide that I'm about to watch this TV series. I've already decided ahead of time, what time am I going to go to bed? That's one of the things I've learned to do. How many series am I going to watch? You set a limit. Part of having boundaries is setting limits. Right? You've pre-decided. There was a time when my wife said to me, I wanted to watch a football match. I like watching soccer. It was Champions League, I think it was. It was late at night. And my wife said to me, okay, I'm going to bed now, but why don't you give yourself a cut-off time? I might have shared this with some of you. And I gave myself a cut of time. I remember Barcelona was playing against another team. It was a few weeks ago. It was a juicy match. I'd said to myself, I'm going to go to bed. I think my, my cut of time was half past 10. I'd made that commitment. She was fast asleep. She wouldn't know any better. And it's the 70th minute. And goals are being scored left, right, and center. Those of you who are soccer lovers, you know what I'm talking about. I literally had to pull myself up from that couch, extricate myself from that couch and go to bed. Because the conviction I had as I was sitting, you know what it was? Paul, you have to keep your word. You had said to your wife that you'll go to bed at 10.30. If you can't stick to your word on a small matter like this, what value does your word have? What value does your word have? Now, I could have very easily said to my wife the following morning, e, my love, it was difficult. It was a juicy match. It was Barcelona, and they were just scoring, and the way Messi was playing. And she would have understood. It wouldn't have been a big thing like, oh, Paul, naughty, naughty, naughty. But it was a conviction, and that's where the discipline comes in. Okay? I channel my energy in the activities that are appropriate for the given time of day. And we've spoken about this earlier on. Okay, I'm clear about my life purpose. If you don't know what your life purpose is, you won't use your time effectively. And most people, you know, people on drugs, people who just digit, we used to, talk, to call it digiting when we were growing up, you know, people who are just like being a, we used to call it, the slang term that we used was my robot. We would call them my robot. Okay, guys who are into break dancing and so on, robot, you know, robot dancing and so on, right? And that's how we danced as we were growing up. And some of those guys, you know, you'd see them with the baggy trousers, the big caps, those basketball shoes. And you're like, so what were you doing this weekend? And they were saying, I was just, I was just digiting. It started off as being a robot. Vim, do you remember? Tuffy, you remember? Yeah, my robot. Started off being a robot and then digiting, you know? Hey, what were you doing? Just chilling and maxing, just digiting, right? It's often because they don't have a clear life purpose. They don't have a clear life purpose. Because I can tell you right now, I know my purpose. And because of that, my time becomes very precious. And one of the things to do if you want to uh, be effective at time management, chunk your time. Where you already know, all right, on Saturday, this is what I'm doing. But not the whole of Saturday. This is what I'm doing 8 to 9.30, 9.30 to 11, 11 to 12.30. You've chunked your time. If you want to use part of that time for leisure, it's allocated. 
If you don't plan your time, you'll always be on someone else's timetable and schedule. And ultimately in your life, you'll make other people rich and not yourself. You're getting what I'm saying, ultimately. You'll make other people successful, other people wealthy, and not yourself. Remember the saying, the unprepared person is always at the mercy of the prepared person. Have you noticed that? If you never have a program for your weekend, guess what's going to be happening? You'll always be on someone else's program. People will come to you on Friday and say, hey, so uh, can you come to such and such a function? You know those people who are last minute about everything. And what will you do? Because you don't have a plan, you'll just go with the flow. Okay? I'm clear about my life purpose. This is a, there's a whole teaching here, isn't it? There's a whole teaching here in terms of figuring out your life purpose. But let me just share with you one thing for free. Just one thing. God is like an architect. If, if an architect comes and says, oh, so you want me to build a house for you? Okay. What's the first thing he's going to ask you? What's the purpose of the house? And then he designs it according to the purpose. So if you want to know what your purpose in life is, look at how God has designed and wired you. Don't try to be someone else. If I try and preach and teach like someone else, yes, you learn tips here and there in terms of best practice, but I won't be able to do it. Don't try to be like someone else. Be how God has wired you. How has he wired you? Because the stuff he's put inside of you, he's put there because of your purpose. So what God first did was, he then says, okay, what, what do I want to use Sunera for? I'm going to use her for this, 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 and this, and this. Right? While you're in your mother's womb, right? Already had a purpose for you. I'm going to use her for this, 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 and this, and this. Because I want to use her for these things, how am I going to fashion her? Then he starts putting desires wiring her in a certain way, the intellect, right? The systems thinking, all those things, the heart of compassion, right? Putting it, putting it, putting it, putting it, putting it. And when she goes by how she's naturally wired, she becomes very effective in her purpose. Does that make sense? Okay, that's just one of the lenses, one of the things to look at when you're discovering your purpose. We've done a lot of work around this. There are other tools also. Okay. I'm in charge of my time. I'm in charge of my time. This is where you have to be assertive about boundaries, hey? Be in charge of your time. Let me ask you a question. Are you in charge of your time? Do you start off your day and you follow through with what you had decided while you're always being stretched in different directions? Ah, but we need you for this. Ah, but we need you for that. I'm telling you right now, if you're a people pleaser, you won't be fully successful and you won't fulfill what God has called you to fulfill. Jesus was not need-minded. Jesus was mission-minded. That's why Jesus could literally say, yeah, even though these crowds want me and so on, guys, let's go to a remote place. We need to rest. Crowds want me, crowds come. Guys, um, just press pause on these crowds. Let's cross over to that other town. For this reason, the Son of Man was sent because I also need to preach to these guys there. He was mission-minded. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. What's the Father doing in your life? Do that. Because I'm going to tell you something. People will always pull you in different directions. Today, one person will be saying, I want this. Tomorrow, someone else will be wanting the opposite. What will you do? There's only one of you. 
A lot of people, as they get older, they realize, okay, I can't really be Superman. I can't be Superwoman. Do you know the people you look up to, who you admire, those corporate heroes or those ministry heroes? Do you know why they're so successful? They found out what their purpose is, and that's where God's grace is functioning. God's grace doesn't function where you're outside his purpose. It's like God says, this is your calling, this is your mission, and these are the resources I'm allocating for that mission. So if I want those supernatural resources, I need to be in line with the mission. If I move out of the mission, that's where I'm complaining now, saying, I'm burnt out. This is so dry. There's no anointing here. You see? Okay, that's just how God operates. So are you in charge of your time? I can tell you right now, those people are really successful and so on. Number one, they are doing what they're called to do. Right? They're doing what they're wired to do. Right? So it doesn't drain them. It doesn't drain them. Okay? Secondly, they spend most of their time doing it. That's why they have lots of practice doing it. And they become better and better and better. That's why you see in the healing ministry, you'll see people, they were praying for a whole lot of people, and then you see the results, maybe 50%. Then they keep on doing it more and more and more. 60% results, 80%. They start understanding the technology of divine healing. They start seeing, reading up on it, reading. Stop. What did John G. Lake do? Oh, okay. This is, what did this person do? Okay, I'm learning, learning, learning. Then with some people, this is what happens, eh? The trajectory. If you look at certain people like your Benny Hins and so on, it was later on in his ministry as he was getting older that he started experiencing creative miracles. Early part of his ministry, he wasn't necessarily getting that. You know what I mean by creative miracles? Where there was no ear, now an ear grows out. Or there was no foot, now a foot grows out and so on. But what happens is at a certain point, and I've been studying it a little bit, I'm noticing that in terms of momentum, there's something, guys, about faithfulness. Watch this space, even with this church. We've been saying, Lord, how do we get it to grow more? We've tried this, we've tried that. We've been involved in ministries. We've planted other churches before that just exploded. Numbers-wise, multiple campuses, things happening and so on. Then we said, Lord, the church grew and at a certain point it's almost like it stagnated. Then my wife was praying and then she had that vision of that Buddha looking like thing uh, up on the roof of the church. We started rebuking this thing and all of that. Now only recently... This is eight years down the line, right? Now, only recently, we're getting interesting testimonies. Firstly, people who had left the church are starting to come back. A lady wrote a testimony basically saying, you know what, I've been coming to go in and out for some time, but it's only now, right, that it's like, it's like almost like I was blinded before. I now really enjoy the worship experience, the word and everything. So that showed me something. It's a spiritual dynamic that sometimes blocks people, hey, from actually coming to a church. People will visit. We've had so, we have visitors. People know about us. And they'll come. And they say, wow, wonderful message. Really great, great, great. But you don't see them again. You're like, what's going on here? There's something about faithfulness when you keep on keeping on. And then at a certain point, it's almost like something just shifts gears in the spirit. People like Matthew Ashmolo. Do you know that for the first eight years or so of his ministry in London, his church never grew beyond about 400 people. At a certain point after the eighth year or so, it exploded. And then at a certain point, it was the largest church in Europe. 
So guys, when things start off slow, don't be discouraged. When you pray for the sick and so on, and you're healing the sick, and you don't always get the results you want, you know what? God isn't the problem. You now have to study and say, where was the blockage in the healing situation? And the people who get results, if you speak to people like Bill Johnson, the Bethel guy and so on, he'll tell you that. He'll say, guys, when my dad then just died, I think it was cancer or something like that, so it's easy to have questions. But for them, they let's seek the Lord's face. Okay? Why wasn't there breakthrough here? Why wasn't there breakthrough there? Then you understand the technology of it, why certain prayers aren't answered. And you have to say to yourself, but wait a minute, Jesus, every single person who came to you who wanted healing got healed. That's the standard. And Lord Jesus, you said in your word, he who believes in me will do what I'm doing and even greater. That's a promise. So if I'm not doing greater, I need to now seek his face and say, what's the blockage? What's the blockage? What's the blockage? The people who get ultimate results are the ones who seek God's face. If you're struggling financially and you're not getting the breakthrough, you have to go into the word and say, but Lord, you said seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added. I'm doing it. You said this about tithing. You said this about this. I need to figure out what's the blockage. Then he'll show you. Sometimes it's warfare and he's teaching you new levels of warfare. There's a vision I get when God wants me to shift gears, hey, from just intercessory prayer to spiritual warfare. There have been times when I need access into an organization and you'll actually just show me that, you know what, Paul, just, just own the space. In one of the banks a few years ago, the team was led by a particular atheist. Before the meeting, I literally took authority over the room that we were going to use. And I said, thank you. I thank you, Lord, that the, the anointing on me will be the dominant anointing in this place. I prayed one of those prayers. Do you know what happened in the session? I broke them up into groups and they had to come up with ideas for functioning better as a team. This atheist lady, I was overhearing her speaking to the person she was partnered with. She was saying, I think what you guys need to do is you need to actually start a prayer meeting. And so initially I actually thought she was just joking. And then now when she was giving feedback, she was reinforcing it. And initially people were laughing and she was saying, no, seriously, guys, a family that prays together stays together. I think you guys, not her, because she's an atheist, says, I think you guys need, seriously, you must start a prayer meeting. And I said afterwards, Lord, why is this atheist encouraging a prayer meeting to take place? Lord says, my anointing on you was the dominant anointing in the room at the time. So, so whatever happened, it was under your control, your influence, right? Anything outside of that couldn't function. So there are times we have to take authority in the spirit. Does that make sense? I don't know why I got onto that. We're talking about being in charge of your time. Okay. <laughs> I'm progressively replacing bad habits with good ones. Isn't that a nice image? <laughs> ah, this one. This one. <laughs> Pastor Vim, what did I have? We had lunch with Pastor Vim the other day. The, yesterday. Anyway, because often I'm convicted. You know when there's that choice? And then the waiter's there and your wife who eats very healthily is there listening. And the waiter's like, so um, would you want the, it with vegetables or with chips? What would you want? Hey, the chips are calling. The chips are calling, guys. <laughs> I'm progressively replacing bad habits with good ones. And guys, what I want to say is you're in charge of it. Just because the waiter comes and says, this is how we cook our fries. This is how we cook our beggars. No. 
You are there, you are sitting there, and you are paying. Say to the guys, guys, I want mine grilled, not fried. You're in charge. Ah, it was the waiter. They get, they've given, what can I do? You know, you go to many places. I couldn't be rude. <laughs> hey, all this cake. Oh, guys. And your mind, you're like, they gave it to me. No, you ate it. Were they spoon feeding you? Were they force feeding you? You ate it. Okay? Let me just say something. In the science of success, success is actually about successful habits. And the sad thing is often when we talk about habits, we talk about bad habits, don't we? Ah, that's a bad habit. That's a bad habit. Success is about habits. People who are healthy have different habits, eh? And rituals to unhealthy people. You find that healthy people, the moment their alarm goes off, they, they don't press the snooze button. And they've got a routine. They've already got their sneakers there next to the bed. And they know what they're going to do. It's part, it's, it's, it's part of their lifestyle. Okay? Ask yourself as you go from here, what habits do I need to form to replace the bad habits? You see, guys, you don't break habits. You displace habits. Many people try to break habits. I'm quitting this. I'm quitting because it's a bad habit. No, rather say, I'm going to displace this bad habit with this good one. What are some powerful habits we can have and rituals? I've got a habit where I'll always make sure every night we'll kiss each other goodnight. Even if we've had a big argument, whatever, it's just this thing, the last 16 years of marriage or so, you, just, you, you kiss. Like on the lips, you give a kiss to the person. Another habit we have is we pray together before we go to bed every night. No excuse. Right? If my wife has had to go to bed early, I'll just say, good night, my love, I'll pray for us. And then I'll go and I'll pray downstairs or something. But that's what we do. Okay? What habits do you need to embrace in your family, in your lifestyle, in your business that will make you successful? You see, we tend to measure people's success by their peaks instead of measuring success by lifestyle. Lifestyle. What you do every day. Not what you do when you just feel good in the holiday season. Okay? I consistently practice good rituals that are life-giving. What's a good ritual? Saying grace before you eat. That's a ritual, isn't it? Celebrating birthdays. Why is that a good ritual? It creates a culture of belonging. And you have to be disciplined to do that. Because sometimes you don't have the money to buy a big gift. So it's something you have to think through, something you have to plan. It's a powerful ritual. You know that celebrating a birthday is the only time you're celebrating someone for just existing. It's very powerful. Those of you leading teams do that. Think about it. You've just given the person a bad review. But the following day, it's their birthday. There you are. You're giving them a cake, giving them a present, having a birthday lunch for them. He's a jolly good fellow. He's a jolly good fellow. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know the guy's messing up at work. Okay? Powerful ritual. I promise you, if we tap into the power of habits and the power of rituals, we go to new levels. A powerful habit to have is reading. Reading. One of the things my wife does uh, when she's taking the kids to school, there's a thing called Heroes of the Faith. You guys must get it. It's an audio book. So you can, you can listen to um, audios of Brother Andrew, you know, God Smuggler. At the moment, they're listening to 
um, David Livingston, the great missionary. Powerful stuff, and the kids are hooked. And they're having that consistently as they go to school, as they, come, as they go to school. And I haven't been listening to it, but they're coming with all these stories. Yeah, yeah, because like Brother Andrew, yeah, I want to do a Brother Andrew and smuggle Bibles and do this. Because for them it's exciting because it's like, you know, you're being sneaky and so on, right? But that's a ritual, so it's not a once-off. One of the things I've started doing with them is Bible quiz for kids. You just Google it. It's there with the answers and so on. Because they're very competitive, it's getting the word in them. And they're now realizing, I've been telling them, guys, I was preaching when I was 12. So can you imagine that's challenging now for Samuel? It's like, huh? I need to up my game. Now Samuel is coming up with ideas. He basically said to us, he then said, Dad, um, so with the Bible quiz, can you come up with stuff? Can you tell us what passages of the Bible to study? And then give us a reward, like cash or something like that. And then you tell us, then we study it, and then we have the competition. So it's now game on. So I said to them, guys, the book of Acts. Because I'm studying it right now. I've started reading the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 to 4. In a few days, I'm going to test you on it. And that's the quiz. It's going to be on that. Okay? But all I'm saying is it's becoming a lifestyle. Right? To take them to their next level. I enjoy regularly getting my subconscious receptive to good suggestions and visualizations that I give it. This is extremely powerful. And you know what's sad for me? The New Age movement is teaching this. Yet as Christians, we should be at the forefront of teaching people how to visualize. Jesus visualized, I do what I see my father doing. He was seeing something. I was sharing with some people that I was coaching. It was a particular Friday. I said, guys, I'm going to inter-schools athletics just now. As I get onto the highway, I need to visualize how I'm going to be. I'm seeing myself cheering on my kids, especially one of them who I had to discipline the night before. I'm seeing myself cheering him on, and you'll know dad loves him unconditionally. I, I know my wife's love languages are touch and quality time, so as we're cheering on the kids, I'm seeing myself embracing her and being affectionate towards her, despite how I'm feeling exhausted right now. What am I actually doing? That's discipline, isn't it? I'm living out my value system, even though my emotions are, I just feel like chilling. You're visualizing. And I want to encourage you to discipline yourself to see and to also feel and get into the emotional state that you want to be in. Athletes do that. They condition themselves emotionally, don't they? That's what they first do, and then they compete. We need to do that on a daily basis. This is the mood I'm going to be in today. What did it mean when David said, Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. What does that mean? His spirit was speaking to his soul. His spirit was commanding his soul. His spirit was making sure that his soul does not dominate his spirit. I can be crawling in traffic, going at 5Ks an hour, late for a client, but I've pre-decided I'm a joyful person. I'm going to be joyful today. I'm not going to give the traffic power over my mood today. That requires discipline. But how do most people live their lives? You go into that open plan situation at work, and what's the first thing you do? What mood is the boss in today? Oh, he's in a bad mood. Then you spend your whole day trading on eggshells. You've just allowed someone else's weakness to control your emotional state. Powerful people don't do that. Okay? It requires discipline. 
I enjoy being a well-balanced person who has regular recreation and leisure with my spouse, family, and friends. For a lot of the men here in particular, because as men, the way we are wired and the way God made us was for work, wasn't it? Okay? So our natural tendency is not to do this. Our natural tendency is we can just push, 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 push the hours. Right? When we're upset with people at home, we just hide from them by working. That's one of the reasons a lot of men come home late. It's not because they couldn't come home earlier. They're just in that mode where it's like, eh, ah, she's a nagging wife. It's easier for me to just, let me start doing tomorrow's work today. There's something they're avoiding. Okay? I love keeping healthy, fit, and in shape as I'm a good steward of my body. There's some people who are into that. I saw you've just come from gym, hey? Yeah, you look like you've come from that. I saw you with your gym bag and so on. There's some people who are big into this. This is important, but always link it with that revelation. I'm a good steward of my body. The moment my body packs out, that's my ticket out of here. I can't just be a spirit flowing around, floating around. So I have to look after my body so that I can be here for a long time in order to do good works. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us, we might live a long life. Our helper, Tendai, um, she's called Tendai. That's what I'm saying. I'm not calling that Tendai. Our helper called Tendai. Her grandfather this weekend passed away at aged um, 104. Okay? I remember once saying to someone, I just see you living a long life. I've just seen a vision of you living a long life. And this pastor said to me, I hope that comes with, with good health too. So yes, some of us might live long, but we want to live long and healthy. Does that make sense? Okay. I tell my money where to go, and it obeys. Let that be your portion. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for the things we've covered today. May you help us to be disciplined leaders. We need your grace, Lord, to go to our next level of being disciplined as leaders of governing ourselves and managing ourselves well. I pray, Lord God, that these truths will never leave us. Help us as we implement them. Help us as we discuss them with other people and as we teach people. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I want to encourage you guys, if you want to retain information, by like 75% of the information that you get, I want to encourage you to teach other people. These principles, these things that we're sharing, they come to life when you have the discussions. You know, talk about them in your small groups, talk about them at work, pass them on. Uh, we record these sessions so you can pass on the videos also. Uh, we'll make available the notes, the PowerPoints, that kind of thing. Okay? Thank you so much. God bless you.